Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Well, we're working through this series on lessons from the wilderness, and we come to this episode of the story of the water from the rock. And uh, if you recall, in the previous passage, God has just provided manna and quail for the children of Israel after they left the desert of sin and went from place to place as the Lord commanded them. And they camped at Rephidim, which means a place of rest. And the people looking at that and, and looking at the geography around the other side of the Red Sea think it might have been a wide valley, about 25 miles wide, and uh, a place where they were going to be able to, to just stay for a little while. But there was no water there. And so the people complained. They said, give us water to drink. And once more they questioned their deliverance, saying, Moses, did you bring us out here to die with our livestock? Now Moses took their complaint to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They're all almost ready to stone me. And God answers. The answer is in Exodus 17, 5 and 6. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I'll stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses did that in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord really among us or not? Meribah means striving and quarreling. And Massa means temptation. And here the children of Israel strove and quarreled with God and they tested him. Now, there's a bunch of lessons in this story. You know, that God's leading sometimes takes us into difficult places. Needs and hardships along the way of salvation are inevitable. The Lord has promised not just to lead us, but to be with us and provide for us in the midst of them. And that's what some of what's going on here with the children of Israel. God is training them to trust him. And he can't do that without putting them in the place where they're going to have a need they can't meet themselves. Otherwise, they're just going to be like the world, meeting its own needs and ignoring the God of heaven. And what God promises will be a place of rest may, in fact, look at first like dry land, just waiting to be filled with his provision. Yet how often are we, like Israel, ready to complain when times get tough instead of praising God for being God and trusting him for provision. It says at Massa and Meribah, the people tested God. And here's the form of the test. They're asking, is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever asked that? Where are you, God? I'm going through a hard time. Things don't look so pretty right now. I'm hurting or something's gone wrong or something's missing. I've got a sore lack, a sore need. Where are you? Are you with me or not? Jesus, you promised to be with me forever. You said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But I'm doubting that right now. Ever been there? 
You're with the children of Israel. They were testing him to see if he was with them. Now, they seem to have forgotten something, that God led them there. The same God who rescued them from Egypt, who opened the sea before them, they were complaining and testing him with their doubts, even as he was feeding them supernaturally with manna from heaven. For all that time, except on the Sabbath, manna would appear in the ground for them to eat. Right there in Rephidim. Every morning they're getting up and there's the bread. Are you with us, God? Do you see like a problem here with what they're telling themselves? It's a little bit of crazy thinking, actually. You know, it's not an accident that the Lord led the people to this wide, dry valley. He was testing them to see if they would trust him or fall to complaining. Listen to what Psalm 95 says about this episode. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. That should be our attitude, right? For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let's bow down and worship. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we're the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. God cares for you. You're his flock. He loves you. But then it goes on. Today, if, you, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. You know, this is, uh, I think this is hard for God to get his head around. He's revealed himself and blessed and poured out grace, and it's happening right as they are complaining to him in his face. And that's why he got upset with them. Upset is probably a mild way to say it. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. There's a key phrase that we as believers, as followers of Jesus, need to get into our hearts and heads. Do you know his ways? Are you walking in them? If you know his ways, you're not going to harden your heart to him when hard things come and bad things happen. Because here's what God did with them. On oath in my anger, he declared, they shall never enter my rest. Now, that's taking advance another story that happens a little bit further on when he asks them and leads them and tells them to go into the promised land and they refuse. But here at Massa and Meribah is the beginning of their attitude revealed. Hardening of the heart is what happens when we get upset and begin quarreling with God about our circumstances, complaining and turning away from him in distrust rather than thanking him for being God and being big enough to handle every situation. It's like something happens and God is there and it's, we're in pain. And instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this pain, we back away and, and cross our arms and hold ourselves off from him. That's the beginning of the hardening of heart. And it's a separation from God is what it represents. Well, I, I'm going to take care of myself. I can't really trust you. I'm not going to trust you when, in fact, you can trust him because he's trustworthy. 
They did not know his ways. They didn't know what he was really like. You know, in this case, they were ready to blame and stone Moses rather than seek God for their need, the need for water. Now, how easy it is to lose sight of the goodness of God because of some hardship or ache or pain or injustice, though God's provision is just around the corner. We should be singing for joy and shouting aloud to the rock of our salvation. Instead, we begin complaining about the problem, not asking God to take care of it, not trusting him to meet the need. Have you ever been around someone who's constantly complaining about their every circumstance? Quarreling with no one in particular, that things are miserable, they're thirsty, they didn't get their way, everything's against them. They're empty and thirsty in their eyes are not on heaven to have their needs met. They're hoping that by pouring their complaint on you, being heard by one more set of ears, perhaps there will be alleviation of their suffering. But there's no sign of trusting God, the one who can fill them, because you can't. That's one of the things about a complainer. If they are empty and complaining out of that emptiness and they come to pour that emptiness on you, you are not the living water, are you? Right? So you become like a, a bit of a, a desert as you hear what their need is that you can't meet. And even sadder when we think maybe we can meet it. It's exhausting to listen to that. There's no sign of trust or God or thankfulness in them, trust in God, only bitter complaining. You know, and, and, and I suppose it's the same way God feels when he hears us descending into a constant tirade of complaints that are indirectly leveled at heaven when there has been no prayer, no petition, no request for needs to be met, no thanksgiving, no praise, no surrender, no faith, no trust. Now, don't get me wrong. At Rephidim, the people had a real need. They were thirsty, and they needed water in that dry place. You cannot live without water for very long. There's a time when we need to express the pain or the difficulty or the need we are having and name it and bring it to God. Ask for his help. And then thank him and trust him that he's heard us. And sometimes we need to do that repeatedly. Like the story Jesus told of that, uh, un, that woman who was going to the judge looking for justice, and he, she was complaining day after day, getting on his nerves, why aren't you giving me justice, justice, justice? And then finally, just to get her off his back, he, he answered her petition. And he said, now, if that unjust judge will do that, how much more will your Father in heaven, who's good and who is just, meet your deep need and bring justice for those who ask him. Now, one of the reasons I love David is because he trusted God for justice, even though he had a guy who was trying to kill him regularly. But he wouldn't raise his hand to bring justice for himself. When he had Saul in his very hands and he could have killed him inside the cave and on other occasions, instead, he let him go. And he said, you're treating me unjustly, but God sees, what, unjustly, but God sees what's going on. He trusted and knew God's ways that God is the ultimate judge and the best one at meeting out justice. And in due time, God took care of Saul and made David king. 
And David didn't have on his conscience the guilt of shedding blood, the blood of God's anointed. You know, there's a time when we need to express what we're going through and tell God and ask for his help. The problem with complaining is in the hard-hearted way is that it shows one's heart is filled with the opposite of faith, unbelief, and distrust. You know, God knew the people's need, their thirst, and he provided. He knows your thirst and your need. And he will provide for you as well if you will only ask him. Now, I want you to see the way the Lord did this. It's surprising. He tells Moses, take your staff and strike the rock, and I'll make water come out of it. And Moses obeys in the presence of the elders, so there's witnesses. He takes the, the, rock, the staff to this rock the Lord shows him, and he strikes it. And it says, the Lord stood before him there. See, it's the Lord who made the water come out of the rock. The staff wasn't magical. It wasn't like, uh, you know, Princess Shira's sword of power or what have you. Uh, it was God who brought the water out of the rock at Moses' obedience to him in striking it with his rod. I think that's one of the reasons that Moses took the staff with him when he died and nobody ever saw it again. So the people wouldn't turn that staff into some type of object of worship, an idol, and a stumbling block. Because it wasn't really about the staff, it was about God standing there with him. And the Lord made water come out of the rock, and the people had their need met, and their testing of God was answered, and this time with patient provision. I want you to see that. This is a time when uh, there is quarreling, there's complaining, there's testing. But God meets their need. And nobody dies on this occasion. Some of the occasions that happen when they're testing him, there's judgment. But on this occasion, there's provision. And he gives it. The Lord knows your need, your thirst. And as he's promised to be with Israel to take care of them, if you are in Christ, he has promised to be with you and take care of you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. Now, it says interestingly in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul's commenting on this, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. It's talking about Israel and the lessons in the wilderness. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. When it says the Lord was standing there with Moses, that was Christ standing with him. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Uh, and just consider what it looks like to set our hearts on evil things. Where is your temptation to not trust God? To try to do it yourself. Where is your place where you are tempted to complain and pull back from trusting and worshiping God in joy and instead focus in on your bitterness? And not to, in order to tell him about it and give it to him, but just to stew in it. And so those are different things. It's okay to get hurt and feel bitter 
and need to say it and pour it out like Job when he suffered. But it's another thing to just keep on holding on to that and saying, no, I'm not going to let that go. I'm not going to forgive you, God, for letting this happen to me. I'm not going to let you off the hook. You stay over there, I'm going to stay over here, and I'm just going to complain. That's different, isn't it? Setting our hearts on evil things. You know, it says here, there are three examples that are given. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. That's the calf, the golden calf episode that's coming up. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up and to indulge in revelry. Turning away to other things to worship them. What's first in your life? I appreciate Connie Parrish's testimony. She led out by saying, Jesus was not first in my life. And I heard the testimony of other people in whose lives he was first. I wanted that, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I became a different person because of it. Have you done that? Have you turned your life over to Jesus to let him be first, to let him be Lord, who he deserves to be because he is? Or do you set your heart on evil things, which means things less than God, to be Lord? Now it says the people, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. Now that's another episode that's coming up, an evil desire that the people set their hearts on. Well, I'm thirsty for this kind of stuff. And they gave themselves over to it wholeheartedly, like this is going to satisfy me and fulfill me. And the result was death, a plague. And we look at our culture right now, which is sated with this type of thing. It's outside the church in mass. And every day we read new news of people in our, our culture and, and around the world who are pushing the boundary back further and further into sexual immorality, thinking that they're going to find joy and happiness and fulfillment and peace in that type of water. But it's poison. People are out there drinking that water and they are dying by the hordes. They think they're being satisfied, but afterward they're more empty than they started. And they bring upon themselves the judgment of God. Because it says in the scripture, God will punish all the sexually immoral. Now the sad thing is when that comes into the house of God and the people of Israel, including spiritual Israel, that happened to Israel in the wilderness, and it happened sometime in the New Testament. You can read some of the letters in the book of Revelation and see that some of those churches were wrestling with that very thing. People inside the church saying, it's okay to do this. Don't worry about it. Just live free. What was the big model from Woodstock? I'm not going to tell you, but you know it if you're old enough to know Woodstock, right? But did that bring wholeness and completion and satisfaction to the culture? No. It brought the destruction of relationships, attacks on the intimacy and joy of marriage, preparation for life together as a family being broken, all kinds of boundaries being crossed, and people suffering to this day from the Me Too movement to the child who's uh, molested in secret to all the terrible things that have flowed out of our culture that has said, hey, we're going to get this type of water instead of trusting God for our thirst and doing it his way. What does Paul write this? Those things are written down as examples for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come so that we will not imitate them and pursue evil desires so that we won't be destroyed like them. God's people are called to come out of those ways of Egypt and Babylon and to live as holy people, lives fully dedicated to God. You know, there's somebody who has water that you can drink that doesn't poison you afterwards. And I want you to think about him because that's, who Paul's pointing to in 1 Corinthians 10. 
They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock which God has given us to drink. Now think about it. He has already been struck. When the rod and his passion and his death, he has already been struck. And from that striking comes our healing and fulfillment. He never needs to be struck again or crucified again or suffer again to atone for sin. The way to heaven has been opened in him. The way to receive the living water has been opened in him. The way way to receive the satisfaction for the soul that in the flesh the things you pursue outside of him can never satisfy has been opened in him. And now that he's been struck and raised indestructible as the steadfast rock, he has living water to everyone for everyone who asks him. Maybe you remember that other episode in the wilderness when the people were thirsty near the end of their 40 years of wandering at the dry place of Kadesh Barnea. And there the Lord instructed Moses to speak to the rock and water would pour from it. But Moses, in a fit of self-righteousness, rebuked the people for being rebels and said he and his brother would bring water from the rock and he struck the rock twice instead of trusting God and doing it God's way. Now, God did allow water to come out of the rock on that occasion, but he forbade those brothers from entering the promised land because they didn't trust him or honor him as holy in the sight of the people. Now, the imagery is beautiful because the first time the rock is struck and water comes out, Jesus has been struck, our rock. The second time, all we need to do is ask him for water. He doesn't have to be struck again. You don't have to hit him. You just ask. Remember that woman at the well? That woman who is living in sexual immorality, who is seeking to satisfy her life by serial relationships and not finding fulfillment, who is empty and thirsty and didn't even know what the living water was when he offered it to her, but he did offer it to her. After he asked her for a drink and she says, how are you even talking to me? I'm such an outcast. What are you doing? You you holy people don't talk to us kind of people. And he says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask him for living water, and he would give it to you. You need to get your head around this, because Israel is called to come out of the nations and be different. Spiritual Israel is to be different from the world. We should not look at our nation full of non-believers and people who don't know God and don't know his ways and expect them to live in his ways, right? They are the nations around us. And sure enough, in in our country, we have people from all kinds of different countries and nations and backgrounds who come together and they do not know Jesus. They do not know the rock. They are not in him. They are drinking from different wells. We should not expect them to live as if they knew him. But we who are in Jesus, we do know him, and we should be walking in his ways. And then some of those people see us, and they say, wow, you guys are not thirsty the way we are, or when you are, you seem fulfilled, but we're not. What do you got? What have you got that we're missing? The woman over the well was just like that. Typical person in the world trying to fulfill her need the way the world tells you how to meet your needs, and not getting it. Lonely, outcast, Afraid of men, not even willing to marry the guy she's with now because, nah, better keep them at a distance. They're, they're not safe. And Jesus offers her himself. I'm the solution. The Messiah you're looking for. The Savior you're looking for. The rock that gives water you're looking for. He promised whoever believes in me out of their innermost being will come rivers of living water. And he meant the Holy Spirit as the 
The scripture there says, and that's what happens when you're in Christ. He gives you the Holy Spirit to fill you up and meet that need that no worldly solution can meet. And here's the neat thing about the river is a river isn't like a, a well. It's not like a cup that just is meant to stay there. A river flows. And when God gives you his Holy Spirit, he means for it to flow out of you to others, to bless them, to share the love of Christ with them, to offer them water from the rock. Not that you're the rock, not that you're the water, but filled with his spirit, you have him to offer. So have you asked Jesus? Have you spoken to the rock to ask him to meet your needs? Will you give up trying to run your life your way? Now, it's interesting. The thief says, I have a need and here's how I'm going to meet it. I'm going to take from this or that that doesn't belong to me to meet my need. But what does Paul say? He says, those who are stealing, they must steal no longer, but work so that they have something to share with others. It's not condemnation he brings to the thief. It's the call to repent and live right because he knows Jesus has been struck The sins have been paid for. The thief deserves to be struck, right? But who's been struck in his place? That's right. Who's been struck in our place for our sins? You can say it louder than that. That's right. Jesus has been struck. You don't come to God anymore afraid that you're going to get struck when you talk to him about your need. If you've trusted in Christ and asked him to be your Lord and Savior, or maybe you need to do that today. Like Connie, Lord Jesus, I've not been Lord. You, uh, you've been not been Lord. I've been Lord, but I've been trying to meet my needs and it's not working. Please be my Lord and meet my thirst. Give me water. You're the rock. And I believe all I have to do is speak to you now. And that's enough because you have been raised from the dead and you promised to be with those who believe in you to the very end of the age. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Amen. So brothers and sisters, let's have an end of complaining and not trusting. Now, if you have a heartache and you need to pour it out to God and maybe find some brothers and sisters to help bear that burden, then you do that. But then let go. Let go of that complaint and put it in God's hands. Say, Lord, I have a need. Here it is. I'm asking you to meet it. And I'm going to trust you to meet it. And I'm going to thank you for meeting it. And I'm going to trust you to do it in your time. He led them into Rephidim. That wide valley. And they probably looked around a little bit before they discovered they had no water. And instead of saying, God, you've just, you're feeding us right here. There's the stuff on the ground. Can you provide water too? They start, if you can't see that because you're just listening, I'm flapping my hands like the complaining flap your gums. <laughs> oh, but God is good and he's gracious. Jesus has paid the price for our sin and all we have to do is ask him now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being such a good God. You paid for our sins. You were struck. And you poured out water. (laughs) You poured out water. Out of your side came blood and water. The evidence that you truly died, that you truly took our death in the flesh so we could be set free from death and our flesh redeemed. We thank you, Lord, that all we have to do now is speak to you. Let your needs be made known with thanksgiving and praise. God of all grace will meet your needs. We thank you for that. We put our trust in you afresh today. We ask you to fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Renew us, Lord. We repent where we have been looking to the idols or the other paths of of the world for for self-satisfaction and infilling, not trusting you, trying to do it our own way. We repent of those. We renounce them. And we we declare and, and present ourselves to you and declare that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we ask you to meet our need, Lord.
Fill us up with that living water, that river. Let it flow from us, Lord. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.